0: 1 Samuel 14, uh, picking up where we left off, um, in, for context where we left off was Saul is the new king of Israel, only he starts doing things like he's the new high priest of Israel. So he starts mixing those two titles, he shouldn't be doing that, the only person in history that gets to mix those titles is Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah. So Saul, Saul thinks he's the Messiah, uh, and he's worried about what people think about him, Israel is hopelessly outnumbered, so we left on a cliffhanger. The Philistines are everywhere. The Israelites are hiding in little caves, 1 Samuel 13, verse 6. Uh, Caves, holes, Like they give a list of the various hiding places of the Israelites. But the believers are hiding because they're scared. Philistines are there. and They go out in three different big kind of groups, and they start raiding the countryside, which we should read as the Philistines are killing people and they're, ra- they're stealing from people, and they're taking crops from people. They are absolutely creating chaos everywhere they go, right? So they make the news. They're, they're the orcs of the Old Testament, and they just there is no mercy coming from the Philistines. So we have this nation in disarray. They're being dominated by bullies, and God's people are hiding out in caves when they shouldn't be. So that's where we start tonight. <clears throat> in the middle of that, verse 1, now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistines' garrison that's on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. I'm sorry, under... There's an there's a article there. It should be under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So we get this character Jonathan, Saul's son, that gets introduced. I wonder sometimes if God picked Saul more for his son than for Saul himself. Because we get Jonathan, what a guy. So it says, now it happened, so nothing remarkable about the situation They're all sitting around, hiding out in caves, drawing things on the walls. Um, And you get this unknown time. So we don't know how long has passed since chapter 13. It just says, now it happened. So we're dropped in. Jonathan decides it's time to do something. And he doesn't know what to do, and he doesn't have an army, but he's going to at least get their attention. And maybe if the Philistines are, are going after Jonathan, they're not attacking the countryside. So he gets their attention. And then this character, we keep having these characters in the Old Testament, these nameless characters that show up. And in this one, the title is The Young Man Who Bore His Armor. So given that there's no blacksmiths in Israel and that Saul and Jonathan from the last chapter are the only people that have weapons, they're likely the only people that have proper armor. So you got the King Saul, his son Jonathan, and probably two armor bearers these would be like the top four people in the military. So the fact that this is a young man, an armor bearer would kind of be like the helper of somebody. So Samwise to Frodo, right? So it's just that person that kind of carries and helps them get get geared up. But you could see that in this kind of an army, there's, there's not a lot of people here. So that armor bearer would do more than just help them suit up in their armor. They're not just squires. They would be kind of a squire, a butler, a messenger, a, a, a person who answers the tent flap when people come by the tent. So this would kind of be their assistant or their office helper. And Jonathan says, let's go over. So initially, this could just be a scouting mission. Um, he knows in the judges that God does things with people that take steps sometimes. So God only needs one person. In this case, he's got two. Um, and God has already told them in Leviticus not to worry about numbers. Leviticus 26.8, and five of you shall chase a hundred, a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. So Jonathan takes that promise, and he's sick of hiding in a cave. And at some point, it's better to go out and get killed by the Philistines than to hide in a cave and doubt your God. And so he takes a step of faith. He doesn't tell his father. Why, kids? Why do we not tell our parents things? Because we're scared they're going to say no. And that's exactly what Saul's done. He's got everybody hiding. This is not the king of Israel that he should be. So by not asking his father, he doesn't have to disobey his father. So he doesn't tell him. And Grant, that's not a bunch of tips for how to move forward in life. Saul is sitting. Jonathan is moving. There's a contrast between the two. So even though Saul is head and shoulders above everybody, when he's sitting, that doesn't do a darn thing for him. He's sitting under the pomegranate tree, and Jonathan is moving with his armor bearer. Okay? Then we get this long description of this the Lord's priest in Shiloh. Eli was the priest, and the author doesn't give, notice, does not give Phineas the title of priest. So there, there's, and we know the story of Eli and Phineas, but where it says Eli the Lord's priest in Shiloh, Phinehas, though he pretended to be the priest, was never given that title. And historically, the way he's going to be remember- remembered is that he was a faker. So you've got this character, Ahijah, the son of Etub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phineas, the son of Eli, Lord's priest in Shiloh. So he's four relationships removed from the real high priest, yet he is wearing the ephod as though he's the high priest, even though Samuel is the one kind of leading the country. So the names here also get further away. Um, If you take all those names in that sequence, it's Jehovah's brother, the son of my brother is good, brother of no glory, son of the brass mouth, son of Eli, if you translate all that Hebrew, right? So it just keeps getting further away from what God had intended and and missing the mark. So let's not put a lot of weight in this character um, that's sitting next to Saul. So Saul's got a fake priest next to him and Jonathan's got a loyal friend next to him. And the Bible's going to show a contrast between these two pairs. Uh, Being a fake good guy is not as good as being a real honest guy. So the people don't don't know that Jonathan had gone. Jonathan's not doing this for his own glory. He's not trying to brag about it. He's not boasting about what he can accomplish. He's just going to move forward and do it. So, and then here's the thing with these nameless characters too. (laughs) And then we'll get to verse four. I think at some point, like the next time we go through the Bible... This will be in X many of years. I really want to document each point where there's a nameless character that shows up in the Old Testament because I honestly think it would be fun to see all of them put together in one kind of book about the nameless characters. These people that don't get a lot of glory or credit, but the role this person plays is significant. Verse four, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozez, and the name of the other was Sana, and the front of one faced northward, opposite Michmash, and the other southward, opposite Gibeah. Archaeologists know exactly where this spot is, and it's hard to describe it verbally, but this is a very what we've gotten here is a very defined location that would be a bottleneck for military strategy. So if you control the bottleneck, then armies can't come through there because you can hold off a large force with a small garrison. So the Philistines have taken these military spots in order to keep their domination over the, the region. Um, the most famous of these bottlenecks is like Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans held off the, the Persian army, Or the, right? So this is that kind of a location. So Bozes in the Hebrew is surpassing white or shining, and Sana'a in the Hebrew is thorny. So it's interesting that we got this thing happening in a location that has a surpassing white yet thorny situation, which maybe is a, a, you know, an offhanded reference to the cross. I don't know. Um, it faces, in, in the Hebrew that's mastuk, which means supports. So when it says that these hills faced a direction, it means they supported a garrison that would look out in this direction. Does that make sense? So you, the garrison kind of has a directional face And between both of these, it would go out in two directions. So it was like a tower on the hill. Um, But but because of the shape of the rock, it faces one way and not the other. Verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by the few. And that's why I referenced Leviticus. Jonathan's keenly aware that Yahweh only needs a couple people to change the world. Right? And that, Which puts a lot of weight on all of us. So, for, so his armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Go then, here I am with you. Do according to your heart. When the commands of God are clear, it's better to die for them than to worry about the consequence. You know, I, I see this. When the Philistines are just wrecking your villages and your cities, there's a point at which a person just says, okay, I'm done with this. I'm going to trust my Lord and move forward and Jonathan and this armor bearer do it. Notice they use the phrase uncircumcised. They differentiate the Philistines not on a national level and they don't do it on on a Greek versus Hebrew level. They do it on an uncircumcised versus circumcised. These are people that, that have no covenant with God. And biblically, that's the only division we see between people consistently through the Bible. There's the people that love the Lord, and there's the people that resist the Lord. And so that's the way Jonathan frames it. It says, it may be that the Lord, in in this passage, and and, and again, we see something about Jonathan. We've seen in the past biblical characters that presume God will do things. Jonathan's not making any presumption here. If we go out and we get caught and we get killed, that's the Lord's business. So he doesn't presume the Lord's going to do a miracle. And just that attitude of humility before God, I'm going to take a step of faith, but if the Lord doesn't move or do anything, I'm kind of okay with whatever result happens here. But I'm going to take the step of faith. Where does he have the command to attack the Philistines? Go all the way back to Joshua. They were supposed to drive these people out of the land. So Jonathan already has an existing command of God that he's moving forward on. And these people are doing harm to the Israelites. So he knows that God wants to save Israel. He knows that God's given a command to do that work. And he's going to take the first step in actually doing that job. And it's better than Howering and Coles. So I, I need my Lord of the Rings reference for tonight. And all I could think of, you got this guy that just says, enough. And even though the swarms of orc are all over the countryside and stepping out of his hole is going to maybe get him some persecution, maybe even get him killed, there's a point where you just say, okay, well, that's it. And I'm thinking of Theoden, like for my Lord of the Rings fans, and, and I just got the quote here. Yes, yes, the horn of Helmhammerhand shall sound in the deep one last time. Let this be the hour when we draw swords together. Fell deeds awake, now for wrath, now for ruin, and the red dawn. And then the trumpet goes, Boo! he says, forth the orglings It's this amazing scene. But there's this thing where it's like, okay, I'm ready to die, because I would rather die and serve my king than be a weak mouse in a hole and, and do nothing for my king. And I think sometimes when we're talking to people about our faith, there's a courage that has to happen. I would rather this person hears the good news of Jesus Christ and they're upset with me than I don't tell them and I love them all the way into hell because I'm scared to offend. I'm tired of hiding in holes. And I, this idea that Jonathan has this attitude where he's going to just do it. And, and he does it in the face of death, which is much worse than what many of us face. So at what point will the Philistine evil end in the country? At what point are they done with it? They got this King Saul that was supposed to help him with it, and he's done nothing. So he says, that the Lord. Jonathan's not trying to say he's going to do something. He's waiting for the Lord to do something. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving. So Jonathan has a huge advantage over Theoden. Theoden's just going out with his own strength. But Jonathan's going forward knowing that the God of creation is behind him, all-powerful and almighty. So he moves forward. And then the armor-bearer, man, here I am with you. Not all of God's champions are bold. Some of God's champions just support the bold. While you go forth, I'm praying for you. Whatever you do, I'll do. Wherever you go, I'll go. And, and the idea that not all of God's champions need to be the one out in front. God also brings these nameless armor bearers into our life that are just best friends, allies, brothers, sisters, parents, grandparents. Whatever you're doing, I got gotcha, you. And I'm behind you in what you're doing. And that loyal friend is precious. Greater love has no man than this. that man lay down his life for his friends. This is friendship. And we don't even know this guy's name, which I think is even more beautiful Like, it's not about credit. So where Jonathan's moving forward and he turns for confirmation to his friend, his friend is like, I'm with you, let's do it. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. And you do that. There's a video on YouTube where a guy goes out on a field called the dancing guy. Have you ever seen this video? And he just starts dancing in the middle of this field or at some festival or something. And he dances funny. Like, this guy's a little off his rocker. But he just keeps dancing, and the music keeps going. And like 30 seconds go by, and then somebody, maybe as a joker, maybe they're just there to support him, they come out and they start dancing with him. And then the guy who's dancing, the first guy who's dancing, is showing him the moves. And pretty soon the two people are dancing together. And then a critical moment happens when you see leadership. A leader by themselves is a nut. A leader with a friend is a friendship. But suddenly when those friends allow other people into their life, it becomes a movement. And it's beautiful when it happens. So in this video, a third person comes, a fourth person, and they're all looking at each other. Yeah, let's dance weird. And they're doing this thing. And then hundreds of people get up off of their little blankets at this festival. And they go dance with this guy. And they're all just dancing. And I'm talking hundreds. It fills the camera. And it happens within about three or four minutes. One guy, Jonathan, says, let's fight the Philistines. And what we're going to see in this chapter is thousands of Israelites follow because one guy had a good friend. And that's not craziness. That's just friendship. And when friends do something in the name of God based on what God's commanded them to do, I'm not saying just go be weird. I'm saying go out and be weird doing what God's told you to do. And then you see movements start to happen. So the idea of first follower is really underappreciated because we always look at the leader, but it's usually the first follower that helped that leader be a leader in the first place, right? It's that ally. It's why Jesus sends people out in twos. He doesn't send them out in ones. So verse 8 indicates Jonathan then was proposing in verse 6. He's looking for confirmation because the answer he gets is very well in verse 8. So he's checking. He's not just going out doing something because he had a vision or he thinks he should do it. He's not going out as a maverick. He's going out, but he's doing it with other believers that confirm what he's saying. Yeah, I'm with you, Jonathan. I'm sick of hiding in caves too. And then in verse eight, then Jonathan said, so after confirmation, the word then, then Jonathan said, very well, let's cross over these men and we will cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up and for the Lord has delivered them out of our hand and this will be a sign to us. So this is a second form of confirmation. And I got a lot of people in the room that are like, how do I know if God's talking to me? Confirmation number one was the best friend was I'm on board with this. Confirmation number two is, well, let's let the Lord have his say here too. And let's create a condition where if they're running a garrison, it's really unlikely they're going to say, come on up to us. So they, so basically, they, he gets this second form where he's going to allow the Lord to have some say in if they're going to move forward or not. So this confirmation moment, I think, is kind of an interesting thing that happens. So like Gideon, he doesn't want to move forward without knowing that God's in it with him. Does that make sense? And I think this is, helps us as believers to not do nutty things. So he has a knowledge of God's word. He has a great idea that feels inspired. He confirms it with a friend. And then he's humble enough to give that idea over to God. I'll move forward if God does this, and if this happens, then I won't. So he's testing the spirits, and then step five is when God's in it, he goes to war, and, and that's how this is going to build. It sounds silly, but it really takes the human control and hands it over to God when he does this. Um, Numbers 27, 21, "...he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of the Urim before the Lord." And at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, even the whole congregation. We know from the book of Numbers, this kind of confirmation is part of what God's designed for how his people move forward or don't. If Jonathan doesn't stop to do this, he's just like his dad Saul. And he's just doing things because he thinks they're the right thing to do. But this idea of allowing God to give some confirmation, at least he's humble enough to do that, and God's going to honor that. So whether or not he attacks... It's not his spirit, it's God's spirit. The idea of in verse 10 where it says, if they say, come up to us, then we know to attack. If you're at war with the people, you don't invite your enemy to come look at your garrison, right? Because they can see all your defenses. So this idea of them saying this would be a highly unlikely situation. So when he tests the Lord in this, he actually gives the Lord the benefit of the doubt, and the more likely situation is that they don't attack. It has to be the uncommon situation that gets them to attack. Verse 11. So both, both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, so they just walk out into the open and say, here we are. And this is the way you start a war. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they were hidden. And then it's so kind of a form of mockery. And then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. When someone says this to you with this tone, don't go. Right? This is like middle school kids going, hey, come into this room. We're going to show you something. Avoid that situation. It's generally not going to turn out good. But they say, come up. We'll show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor, come up after me, for the Lord's delivered them into the hand of Israel. So... I just love this. They say, come up to us. They're the exact words that Jonathan said. If they say this, then we're on. It's a go time. They say it exactly. Not only do they do that, they taunt them at the same time, right? And they taunt the Israelites by saying, look, they're coming out of their holes. So they're like the little peas on top of the wall in the VeggieTales movie, right? Not only do they say exactly the code words that that Jonathan had given God, and they add taunts to either side of that. So he's like, and then I like how he says, The Lord has delivered them. Jonathan knows God, he knows him intimately. When God's done a delivering, it's in the past tense, it's a done deal. And when Jonathan says, The Lord has delivered them, he's talking in the past tense. Because when he hears the Philistines say that, he knows God's already made his decision up. It's a done deal. So at that point, it really doesn't matter what comes next. Jonathan knows he's not deceived. He's allowed the Lord a chance to get him out of this and the Lord told him to move forward. So we go to verse 13. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him and they fell before Jonathan and as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter with with which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within a half an acre of land. So the climbing up on the hands and knees, remember these were steep climbs. We saw that a few verses ago. So to get up to these garrisons, they had to climb on their hands and knees to do it. The imagery is just wonderful. Often, God's people, when they go to war, they get on their hands and knees, which is an image of prayer. Often, they, hump, but they put themselves in a vulnerable position in order to do battle with the enemy. That's at least what we call it. Like, so they're going up on their hands and knees. Victory from God is rarely easy. That's another image. We want victories in the spiritual world. It takes some grit. It takes some willingness to do work. God doesn't make this easy for Jonathan. In fact, he's looking at Jonathan putting out this effort that has to go into it. And they fell before Jonathan. I'm going to quote Dave Gusick on this next part. He just put this perfectly. Jonathan knew that the battle was the Lord's, yet he knew God would use him to fight. And when Jonathan saw God's confirming sign, he didn't lay down his sword and start praying that God would strike them all down. He prayed, made sure his sword was sharp, and he trusted God would use him to strike them all down. You know that idea? Sometimes we think somebody else is going to do it. Maybe God needs you. Maybe it's not an accident that you're in the word and you're hearing messages about getting into it and getting into the battle. Maybe sometimes God is asking his people to actually do some work. So over Throughout the history of the world, the idea of a righteous war or battle was not a conflict with Christianity. It's only been in the last 80 years of theological discussion, over, say, 5,000 years of human history around this topic, where we've shied away from the idea that there are battles to fight, right? And we try to spiritualize it. Well, the only battles are spiritual. Yet sometimes God's people have been called to war and called to battle, and that hasn't really been a theological conflict until very recently in Christian history. So I just want to, I mean, if you're struggling with the idea that Jonathan's excited about striking down some Philistines, Jonathan didn't have a quandary with that. These are people that were looting, pillaging, raping, stealing. He's going to end that, and there is a time when evil needs to end, and, God, and Jonathan's not waiting for other people to do it because as the son of the king and one of the generals of the army, God's put him in a position where it's his responsibility. So he's doing it. So that's the, it says in verse 14, I say all that because in verse 14, it says the first slaughter and the Hebrew word there is maka. It means the first beating or striking that's about to happen. Um, So there it's, I think it's Hebrew for what we would say is whooping. It's the first whooping that's going to happen for the Philistines, right? It's this idea, it's not this idea of a rage filled anger, hatred, murdering. It's the idea that these people need to be shown where they're at. And if you want to stop a bully, sometimes they need a smack in the nose. And the first smack in the nose is 20 dead Philistines at this one garrison. If you've ever seen Braveheart, the entire revolution of Scotland starts with one garrison that gets taken over. So that's how the the Israelites start to, 20 men, men. By biblical standards, this is pretty modest. It's not that many people that are getting killed. But it sends a message to the Philistines. Verse 15, And there was a trembling in the camp and in the field among all the people. Why are they trembling? It's one garrison, right? The garrison and the raiders also trembled. And then the earth quaked. And this was a very great trembling. So God starts to chime in in this situation. This little skirmish, two against 20, happens. And then the land starts to shake. And the people hear about this garrison falling. And they're terrified. Why are the Philistines terrified? Because they fully know the history of Egypt. They know what happened to the Ammonites. They know what's been happening to the Amalekites. They understand what happened to the Midianites. They know that when Israel stands up for itself, it's undefeatable. And that's why the Philistines start trembling. They tremble in the camp. It has the word also that implies that the Israelites perhaps were trembling too. What's going on? This change, this shift in the air is going to be a shift in human history and it's seismic literally the ground shakes so they start wondering what's going on it takes courage to go into seasons of change and it takes some guts it takes a little bit of grit so if we do what we can God does what he can the it That is just an amazing, earth-shaking thing. So the garrison and the raiders also trembled. Seemingly, this trembling, when we look at verse 16 and verse 20, the trembling caused them to start attacking one another. When change starts to happen, often the enemy will start to fight themselves. And the snakes will start to bite each other's tails. And it just gets to be this situation where the chaos starts to eat itself. Verse 16, now the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked and there was the multitude melted, melting away, the multitudes of the Philistines, and they were here and there. So they can see this massive camp of Philistines and the whole camp starts moving and running around and starts to melt or lose its shape. Military camps are usually in order. So when there's chaos happening, you know, something like a puma got loose or something. Something's happening down in the camp, verse 16. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll and see who is gone from us. And when they called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there because they didn't tell him that they left. When you're the king of Israel and your people are being destroyed and you see chaos in their camp, what should Saul's reaction have been here? Attack. Attack now they're in disarray. This is our best chance. When small numbers go against large numbers and you see chaos in the camp, his first reaction should have been charge. But he says, call the roll call, figure out who's gone. He's more worried about accusation than he is about victory. And, you know, we just saw that Jesus music thing last night. And one of the scenes in it is, as these Christian musics inspired by the Spirit are making new kinds of songs for the church, Their chief enemy wasn't the world. Their enemy was the church. And instead of saying charge, let's go with this new kind of music, they're like, get this music out of here. It's of the devil. And they start doing that. Jesus starts doing miracles, and instead of the Pharisees saying hallelujah, God's come, they say you must be of the devil. Something's wrong with you. And this is the, the flesh response to the move of the spirit, and it's consistent. And it keeps happening, and it's really sad. Saul, unlike the king he should be, is being the king that he is becoming. Verse 18, and Saul says to Ahijah, the fake priest, bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Remember they had lost it, and then it came back, like God brought it back on his own to the people of God. And Saul still thinks that there's power in a box. It's just a symbol, but bring the ark here. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Remember the priest in the ephod has a pocket, and inside the pocket are two stones like of different colors. They're called the Urim and the Thummim. So Saul is saying, take a roll call. Oh, Jonathan's gone? Then bring the ark. And, and he was, if the priest's hand was in the pocket, Saul had asked him, probably, should we attack or not? even though it's obvious this is the time to attack. So when the noise continues to increase, Saul interrupts this inquiry of God. He never finishes inquiring of God. And when the priest puts the hand in the pocket, the question's been asked, Saul's supposed to abide with whatever comes out of that pocket. So he's breaking the law when he says withdraw your hand, just if we're going back to the particulars of the law. Once you make that request or inquiry, You've vowed to stick with whatever, you're gonna, whatever comes out of that pocket. So when he says, take your hand out, don't do this, he's not waiting for the Lord to tell him what to do. So Saul decides it's time to fight, verse 20. Then Saul, and I mean, contrast this with Jonathan, who does this great testing. If the Lord's in it, we'll go. If he's not, we won't. Saul just makes his own decisions. And there's a real contrast between father and son here. Verse 20, then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, so the camp's in disarray. And there was a very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they had heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Imagine like a snowball going down the hill, right? First, the two guys take out the garrison, then Saul's army shows up, and then we get these other groups of people which tells us something about the condition of Israel before this fight. The Hebrews who were with the Philistines, verse 21, this is likely the slaves that had been taken, so there's a slave uprising that happens at the same time the little army of Israel happens. Remember, Saul had just a few hundred with him, And then you get this other group all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim. So here's these Ephraimites, who we know is kind of attention-seeking as a tribe, being the hiders in the mountain. They're chicken. So the last group to show up is not the people under oppression. It's the people who are the chickens that don't go out and do anything. But you get these group after group, and suddenly the Philistines realize Not only are they not the larger um, army, but they're attacking each other in chaos and they're actually, they're overwhelmed by Israelites that come up all around them. And this is, again, think of the dancing man, right? Just a couple people start it and then all of a sudden there's people all over the place and it becomes a movement. And the people leave Israel, this is the time we're going to get the Philistines out of our land. Well, that's, I think, what could have happened here. Verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. Jonathan being faithful did that first step. Jonathan doesn't get the credit for this. And I don't think Jonathan wanted it. He never went out to get the credit. But what gets the credit in these victories is the Lord God Almighty. It's not the person who started it. It's not the people that were hiding in the holes. It's that they all came out when they were supposed to come out. Even Saul shows up when he needs to show up. So the devout believers take a stand. They get a little success. The lukewarm believers jump in too. And we get this idea of the, that hope is a powerful instrument. And that what Jonathan and, and his armor bearer gave the Israelites was hope. And that then God joined in with the earthquake and that helped like solidify that God is with them and they were ready to move. How's Saul going to react to a mass uprising, a victory of of freedom-loving people asking for them to be free and demanding freedom from the Philistines. What's the reaction of King Saul to this awesome moment in Israel's history? And you'd think it would be like, yeah, the plague of the Philistines has taken a blow today. We're all going to breathe a little easier. The Philistines are gone. Praise the Lord. But that's the opposite of what Saul does. Verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I've taken vengeance on my enemies. So no one tasted food. None of the people tasted food. Instead of saying, Praise the Lord, he forces everybody to fast and causes stress in the nation when they should be rejoicing. So Saul's missing some things here. He started out so good, right? And then he says, my enemies. So Saul's not even seeing it the right way. By saying, my enemies, he's not realizing these are God's enemies. We're not here to have enemies. They should have been God's enemies because it's the Lord's battle and it's the Lord's victory. It says that the people were distressed that day. They were under pressure. The word means that they were driven like they were slaves or by a taskmaster. That they were distressed someone put a pressure on them that they shouldn't have been doing. It was like they're back in Egypt because only now Saul's their king instead of Pharaoh. So they, they, because Saul gets upset, he mandates something and demands that everybody suffers along with him, even though there's no need to be suffering. But this is what tyrants do. Make this vow, and, and God doesn't get any honor in doing that. Think of this as a misdirection. Instead of even God or Jonathan getting some glory here, Saul takes all the attention back to himself by mandating this thing in a moment of great victory. So Saul gets worry instead of praise for people. Maybe he's jealous and he doesn't want Jonathan to get any credit. Maybe he's threatened by Jonathan because Jonathan had courage and he didn't. So fasting is a good thing. Here's another thing. To fast is not a bad thing, but in this situation, it's absolutely a bad thing. Because it's being mandated on other people. Instead of people, instead of Saul, the the correct thing for Saul here is if, if he felt like he needed to fast, he should have fasted. But why is he mandating that other people fast instead of letting them make up their mind about this? And not only that, these are soldiers that need to eat. Like they're running around killing people. Like this is an exhausting behavior to then not eat at the end of the day. You'd have people that grow faint, but that's coming up in the next verses. He says, and not only that, but he says, cursed is the man. So in chapter 13, he started to decide he was a priest. Priests do cursing and blessing, not Saul. So when he says cursed is the man, he's taking on a spiritual authority that he should never have taken on. This is what you call tyranny. He's starting to do the things that Samuel warned the Israelites that kings would start to do. They get power and it goes to their head. So he's doing things on emotion, he's doing things on a whim, he's forcibly placing mandates on the people that he's supposed to be serving, and he's missing the point that a king should be, a servant is not greater than their master, and a king should be a servant of his people. Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, because I am. But if, if I, your teacher, have washed your feet, then you should watch each other's feet. For, for I've given you an example of leadership, that you should do as I've done for you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than their master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So if Jesus could wash feet, we should be too. Jesus provides the kingly example that we should have been seeing from Saul here. But I think we see Saul's example so we can recognize what tyranny looks like. So he leads by example. One way Saul could have done done this. He could have said to the people, I'm going to fast, and if you guys want to fast with me, that'd be great. You know, we're going to watch the Jesus movie on Friday night. If anybody wants to come watch the Jesus movie, you're welcome to join. No pressure. If you want to do it, great. If you, if you can't or you're busy, that's fine too. And that's leadership. It's really simple and it's loving and it's caring. It's an invitation. But instead of an invitation, he makes a demand. And that's not leadership at all. It's the opposite of leadership because you don't get the chance to follow. You get the chance to decide if you're going to get killed or not and obey your king. So the result of tyranny is clear. Distress, curses, and inadvertently hunger in this case. That's what happens when people get tyrannical. You get stress, cursings, and hunger. Satan wants his people to be weak and distressed in a moment of their victory. And this is a total win for Satan. Let's go to verse 25. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. (laughs) Yummy. How did the honey get on the ground? So it's overflowing in beehives above them. I'd be scared of the beehives. Side point, don't mean to distract you from the word of God. But it's been dripping out of the beehives. There's so much honey on the ground. And in the the text, this is a good thing. And when the people had come into the woods, there was honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath, the one that Saul made him take. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand, dipped it in a honeycomb, put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. In the Hebrew, that's Hebrew for yummy, right? And Jonathan not hearing what his dad said says something about their relationship, doesn't it? If the whole army knows what Saul said, but Jonathan doesn't, Jonathan's busy doing God's work, and Saul's busy being a tyrant, Jonathan's just not even tuned into this guy. This is what happens when you stop watching the news. Like the world's got all this drama going on, and you're just serving the king. And suddenly you just miss some of these kind of big events that just happened. Like you're gonna get in trouble if you eat honey. Um, and this can happen sometimes. Verse 28. With a brightened countenance. Mmm, that was good honey. That was tasty. I just love the like the joy with which he's like, mmm, yummy, and all his. Soldiers like, oh, you're in trouble. I just had some good honey. I'm not in trouble. Verse 28, then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Like faint and and as though that word implies that they're, they're literally about to pass out. Not just faint of heart emotionally, but they're exhausted. But Jonathan said, my father's troubled the land. Look now, how my countenance has brightened. Again, Hebrew for yummy. Because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, there would not have been much greater slaughter among the Philistines. If you guys had just eaten some food, we could have chased down the Philistines and and taken care of this once and for all. But because you guys are exhausted, you're all winded and tired, you're about to collapse. We can't even do what God's called us to do because we're wore out. When God's people stop getting sustenance, we're not able to fight the battles we're supposed to fight because we're too dang tired. And that's, a, a, that's one of those things. Why are we so tired? You know, Who told us we couldn't be getting the gifts of God? So honey here is presented as a blessing. Uh, Israel is consistently presented as a land of milk and honey. Uh, we saw that in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua... Never, we're supposed to, in Leviticus 2.11, we're never supposed to offer honey on the, on the altar. Honey is one of the foods that we're not supposed to give to God. It's an absolute blessing and a gift, and we never burn it on an altar. So that's one of the commands. It's one of those odd little commands that are there. I think some of the odd commands in, Le, in Leviticus are there so that when we get to these stories, it makes sense. Honey is a symbol of God's blessing wherever we see it in the Bible. And we're not supposed to take that blessing for granted. We're supposed to enjoy it. So the other thing with honey is we don't make honey. Little bees make honey. We all know that, right? We don't work for honey. You can't have a little honey farm, or at least they didn't in the first century. So we, we might have hives where bees do all that work, but we don't plant seeds. We don't. And part of God's blessing is that we don't work for it. There's nothing we can do to earn God's blessing. So to reject God's blessing is, a, is kind of a pretty horrible thing. So Jonathan's speaking truthfully here. Saul made an arbitrary rule that's not in the law of God, and people are following this arbitrary rule, and they're being cursed by the fact that they're following a rule that isn't in the Bible. And so he's pointing this out to them, again, taking leadership. Um, and he says, my father has troubled the land. You could critique Jonathan and say maybe if he had an issue with Saul, he should have gone to Saul face-to-face, and talk to him. But at this point, he's out in the field with troops that can't stand anymore. So he's trying to say, will you people eat some food? Um, and he shows a little disdain for his dad there. Verse 31. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijalon, which is, by the way, about 20 miles. That's a, I don't know if you've ran 20 miles lately, but there's an entire army of people running 20 miles without food in their belly. Good luck with that. So the people were faint... And the people, verse 32, rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. That, so think like zombie apocalypse here. They get to a place where they're just so famished they just start eating raw animals. Okay, this is not the people of God and how they should act. Then they told Saul saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. There's so much wrong here. So there's an assumption that we know Deuteronomy. We know the rule. When you get stories like this, we're supposed to know what's wrong with this story. Deuteronomy 12, 23 through 25, by law, the Israelites are supposed to cook their meat. No blood left in the meat. They're supposed to eat medium, medium well, or well done. And that's just the law because in that era, diseases got carried in the blood. So it kept the Israelites clean. So when it says they ate them with the blood, what they're saying is all of these soldiers started breaking the law. That God had commanded them. So the arbitrary law of an ungodly king being held by people that don't know what to do and they're just trying to stay out of trouble leads them into worse sin that's actually against the law of God. So now you got the whole army of Israel eating blood-filled meat, probably getting blood-borne pathogens as they do it. So they are obeying fools, not partaking of God's gifts, the honey, and then they seek nourishment somewhere else. This is an image of sin. When you don't enjoy what God's given you, what fills your life is other stuff and it tends to be worse than you started. You know, Jesus talks about when a demon gets cleaned out of a person and and the house gets cleaned up, the demon might be away for a while, but they'll bring back seven demons and take over the newly cleaned out soul. And it's kind of one of those things when we start obeying things that aren't in the Bible, we set ourselves up for even worse sin because we're going to fill our hearts with something. So they fill it up with a bunch of animals in the field. And Saul makes this all happen essentially because of legalism. He creates laws that aren't in the Bible and makes rules for his people that aren't there. This is one of the devastating aspects of the church over the last 2,000 years, that churches get large and they make arbitrary rules that aren't in the Bible, and then those rules become a burden on the people. And it it diminishes the reputation of the people of God because you got churches doing stuff that's not in the word and making rules around it. So you got zombie-eating frenzy going on. This is an ugly scene. This is not the best moment in Israel's history. Um, They're all looking up and, and doing this. It doesn't say they had utensils. It doesn't say that they prepared this meat in any way. Likely, they're eating it raw off the bone. Like, this is absolute kind of caveman behavior. And then they start blaming people for these rules, So he said, you have dealt treacherously, roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, disperse amongst yourselves, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep and slaughter them here and eat and don't sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So now Saul's trying to bring them back like, whoa, stop being zombies and start acting like humans again. Oh my goodness, what's going wrong with you people? So every one of the people brought his ox to him that night and slaughtered it there. And then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Is it a good thing to build an altar to the Lord? Yes. When you do it against God's law, he's messing up again. And we should know that. When you build an altar to the Lord, there's two reasons. One, it's at the tabernacle where God said to build an altar. Or two, you've had an actual encounter with God where he's told you to do... You've, you've met and talked with God. So Gideon built an altar Joshua built an altar. Moses built an altar. But they built an altar to commemorate the spot where God had come and and, and intervened with humans. Has Saul interviewed with God at any point in this story? No. In fact, the reason for him building an altar is to cover his own mistake. This is not a good thing, even though it kind of looks like a good thing. But if we know the law, we know that he's breaking the law and he's breaking a vow here because he told them they were cursed if they ate and now he's telling them to eat. This is another aspect of tyrannical government. They make rules that contradict with one another. First you do this, then you do this, let's go this way, and oh no no, we didn't really mean that, go this way. This is rule by fiat, King George was guilty of this. He would make ridiculous rules that contradicted with one another, because the rule would start to play itself out among the people, and it was a disaster, and then the king would change their mind and try to make different rules. And it's, it's not good leadership. It's really not a good thing for Israel either. So Saul, Saul skips the whole step of having an altar in the right space, and he's making these offerings that are not spotless lambs. They're, they're loot from a battlefield. So they're supposed to bring offerings that are pure and spotless lands that are the fruit of their labor. They didn't labor for these animals. They're not giving anything that is of value to them. They're giving what they stole or took from, from the spoils of battle. So even the offerings going on these altarings are, are not things that the Lord are going to accept. So again, there's so much in this story that comes right out of We have to know the law to understand the story. Now Saul said, verse 36, Let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. At this point, the people are like, whatever, Saul. And, and the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked the counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. If we understand the law that kind of we just went through, we know why God didn't answer Saul. Because nothing that's being done here honors God in any way. Saul's just doing whatever he wants. So even though fasting altering, offering, seeking the counsel all sound like good things. They're not being done God's way. So they're doing things, but they're not doing them God's way. And God has no reaction to that. He doesn't answer them. He just lets them wonder what's going on next. Have you ever kind of been off on your own and you're wondering why the Lord's not talking to you and you, there's a part of your conscience that realizes maybe I should go back a few steps and do it God's way? Right? And so we see this just kind of, you know, Jesus said, in the end, there's going to be people that come to me and say, I prophesied in your name, and I, you know, I, I cast out demons in your name, I did all these good things, and the Lord's going to say, I didn't know you, and who are you? And he's going to cast them out, because they were doing things, but they weren't doing it the way God wanted them to do it. So the humility that Jonathan had at the beginning is in contrast to the arrogance of Saul, and the humility of God, I just want to do it your way. God thinks that kind of heart is precious. I don't know what it is, but Lord, I just want to follow you and I want to do it your way. And if, and if my will is checked or if I'm getting too enthusiastic this way, keep me in line, Lord. But otherwise, I'm going to go forward and I'm going to march with what you've put in front of me. And it shall be when he says, sitteth upon the ground of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of the law and a book out that's before the priests and the Levites. Saul has a copy of the Bible on his person and this is what he was doing that first year of the kingship. He was supposed to write a copy of the Torah for himself. So assuming Saul followed the law and he did that, he knows God's word. He's handwritten it himself, and he's wearing it on his person because he's supposed to keep that book with him forevermore. Saul's just ignoring it. He's not bothering to go through it, even though he's handwritten. I don't, I don't think any of us have handwritten the Bible, or even the first five books. So Saul's ahead of us in that regard, but he's way behind a lot of us because he just doesn't listen to it. And writing it out doesn't save you. Following it does. So God doesn't direct him. He remains silent. This is a sobering theological concept. Do it God's way and God will bless you and the earth will shake. Or do it your own way and God just won't respond to you. That's, I don't know. And Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. So Saul follows up idiocy with more idiocy. Now he makes a vow. And this is one of the many stupid vows we see people make. Saul thinks he's so right and he's so blinded that he makes another foolish vow. Whoever it is that's making it so the Lord won't talk to me, they're going to die. So, not a man among the people answered him. With each one of these situations, like, he's losing credibility with the people of Israel. Because they're, they're just like, they all know Jonathan ate the honey, but none of them are going to say anything. And then he said to all of Israel, you be on one side and Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, whatever, do what seems good to you. Therefore, Saul says to the Lord of God of Israel, give a perfect lot this would be the Urim and the thum. We're going we're gonna to pick that. We're going to see who this was. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, and the people escaped. The priest pulls out the thing and says, you and Jonathan, the rest of the people of Israel are off the hook here. It's you and Jonathan. One of the two of you are the sinners. And Saul said, well, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. And so they did it, and they're like, it's Jonathan. Jonathan did something here that's broken, broken the allegiance. Saul, as king of Israel, made a curse and put a curse on Jonathan. And the Lord's kind of holding this situation. Your word matters. And if you're the king of Israel and Jonathan's cursed, but and, and Saul says to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. One, another way to look at this is maybe the stones, because it says the Lord didn't answer, maybe pulling stones is just like flipping a coin. It's just random at this point. The Lord's not involved at all, right? So there's different ways to like read this. Either way, it lands on Jonathan, because really it's two coin flips. Like, It's not out of reason that you could just by chance have hit Jonathan here. Um, That said, Jonathan tells him, well, I tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, and so now I must die. In total humility and respect for the king and his father, he's going to respect these vows that Saul made. I guess I have to die because I ate the honey. So it's me. Bold ready to die, not putting his own life ahead. Of, he's not fighting at all. Look at just the kind of character Jonathan has. You made the vow, and I guess I'm going to die. It's, you're, you're the king. Saul answered, "Go, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. What a scumbag. What a, what a horrible thing. There's bad stuff in the Old Testament. Yeah, and it's done out of God's command. God says don't make vows like this. You don't need to. So Saul could break this vow and save a life. What's better, Saul getting the curse of breaking a vow or a human being dying? And it's pretty clear in the Old Testament that murder's a lot bigger deal than this vow situation. Saul has the option of just saying, well, Curses on me, I'll take that for you as a sacrificial act of love. But instead of that, he's like, well, you're going to die, kid. What a, And maybe Saul was that jealous of Jonathan at this point because he starts throwing spears at David. We know that's part of his character. So what makes someone so wicked that they're willing to watch their own kid die? So Saul, in chapter 10, verse 21, he started out really humble. He's hiding in the equipment. But by this point, He's not hiding in the equipment and humble. He's willing to let his own family member die because he made a dumb vow and then put another dumb vow on top of it. Tyrants can't admit when they're wrong. And it's one of those kind of truths in life. When you get people so drunk on their own power, they can't admit when they screw up. And you got to get there. When somebody's teaching you the Bible and they can't admit that they're wrong... You guys got to keep me accountable for that. And that's why I always say, don't trust me. Go to the Word and and read it for yourself. We may disagree on some things, but I never want to be in a position where I think I'm so right that I can't admit when I'm wrong and do it in a humility. But in this case, man, Jonathan breaks the law of Saul, not the law of God, but he's willing to submit to both. But the people said to Saul, thank goodness for the people. Shall Jonathan die? who's accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. So, so far the people have been like, whatever you want to do, king. But here they're like, no, we're not going to do this, tyrant. As As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. And then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and this is the worst part of all of it, And the Philistines went to their own place. They don't beat the Philistines this day. The worst part of this sin is they don't finish what they started with the Philistines. They were supposed to drive the Philistines out of the land. They're supposed to chase them across the border and get them out. But they don't. The Philistines stick around. It's interesting that the people clearly understand. It says that he has worked with God. They clearly see that Jonathan has been working with God and they see good fruit. And if there's good fruit, they're not going to attack that because that would have been even worse for Israel. So at some point, the people say, we're not going to go along with the tyrant. We're not going to do that. And Saul had to realize that his life was suddenly in danger. If he went after Jonathan, he was about to pick a fight with his own country. So there's a point where good people stand up and say, we're not going to do this. Jonathan started that at the beginning of the chapter and the people finish it at the end of the chapter. There's something happening in Israel where there's a demand for holiness. So God doesn't answer Saul, but he is with Jonathan in these verses. Every good tree brings forth good fruit, but the corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree can't bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit, Matthew seven seventeen. This is A truth of the scriptures that we see in both the Old and the New Testament. So Jonathan serves, he confirms, he acts, God's word hears it, responds to it, earthquakes. Saul's the opposite, complete opposite, no earthquakes for Saul. And then it goes on and we see what's going to happen to Saul's kingship. Verse 47, so Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against the people of Edom, against the kings of Zobah, that's a new group, and against the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he harassed them, and he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites Amalekites, and delivered Israel into the hands of those who plundered them. This almost seems out of place. It's like Saul builds the kingdom at some level, but let's look really carefully at these words. In verse 7 it says, "...he took kingship over Israel." Wasn't he anointed and given the kingship? But we get the word so in there too. So Saul, as though what you just heard in all this story, this is indicative of his leadership. This is how Saul did things. So we get the implication with the one word so that's in there, that there's this kind of like, it's like as in conclusion, this is how Saul did everything. This is just how he operated. And he took kingship, in the Hebrew that's lakad, it means to capture, seize, or grab something. Even though it was gifted to him by a holy king, he grabbed it and gripped onto it. And this is essentially the sin of not just presumption, but the arrogance that he's in control versus God. You know, instead of letting God take the wheel of your life, he's gripping it and seizing it and holding onto it for dear life. And the tighter he grips, the worse it gets. It says over, which is the, in the Hebrew, that's upon something. So it's not like he accepted the kingship of Israel or the king, kingship of Israel. It says over Israel. It's a different word. And so he was over the top of or dominated Israel, but he was never really their king. So the, the wording that's in here is really particular. And it's so he fought against all his enemies. It doesn't say he beat them. In fact, a lot of these enemies had already been beaten and they seem to be coming out of the woodwork because they see a weak king. And the Philistines have lost some of their dominance over the region. So then all these other nations start to push in from different directions. So his aggressiveness actually doesn't do what he thinks it's going to do. But the one thing we do get out of Saul is we actually get an army that exists that David's going to eventually become a hero of. So there is a group of people called the Israelites and they actually have an army, but they don't really defeat people. It says in these verses that he harassed them or to vex or trouble or to act wickedly towards. Basically, he had a band of raiders that bothered these people. He never beat them or pushed them back. So there's no defeat. There's no conquering. It's just harassment that Saul provides. So he's annoying to the nations around him. This is, again, the problem with ungodly people is they don't really heal or make anything better. They just cause problem and conflict. So the multitude of enemies shows very little respect for Saul as king. Strong kings don't have that many enemies because nobody wants to pick a fight with a strong king. Weak kings, the enemies come out of the woodwork and they start looking at things and what land can we conquer? What territory can we take? Because they see weakness and they go after it. The Verse 49 the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jishwe, you try to pronounce that name, Maya Quishua, and the names of two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the second one's going to be significant. The name of the younger was Machal. Um, Saul actually has another son that's not listed here for some reason uh, Ishbosheth. Um, and, and it might be that Ishbosheth isn't mentioned here because he never leads an army for Saul and maybe this is kind of a list of his sons that led armies. I don't know, and some of you might have other thoughts, but he has another son that's in between these sons, so he's of age, um, but he's just not mentioned in this list. So the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner. Abner becomes a character coming forward, Saul's uncle, and Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. So we get this kind of family tree of Saul. And now there was a fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him for himself. As predicted by Samuel, this is what kings do. They take the best of you and they make them their own. So he takes from Israel, annoys the enemies of Israel. He has endless war with these leaders, he's got this kind of administrative structure in, structure in verses 49 through 50. We get to kind of see who his lieutenants are, and they're all family members, right? He's pretty much, this is what's called nepotism. Uh, he draws the people that are in his family to benefit them, not because necessarily they were the best leaders for the country. Um, he's lucky to have Jonathan in this case. So they historically are creating new enemies, And they make themselves more and more essential, kings do, when they're in this position. Weak kings love conflict because they can then become necessary in conflict. In times of peace, you're like, why do we need a king? It's it's peaceful. Um, And and strong kings are okay with that. But weak kings, boy, you need me because look at all these enemies we have around us. So they prop up enemies anywhere they can. And this is one way, it has been for the history of the world, for weak governments to maintain themselves. Create enemies and prop yourself up, and the people will put up with a lot of abuse. Most notably, if they have a strong son or a valiant son, Saul's going to take those sons. It's a new kind of tax. He's going to draw people slave conscription or draft conscription into his army uh drafts are generally not a good thing historically people get very angry when they lose their kids um and we have a lot of people in this room that if there was a draft they'd be gone and that breaks hearts when you do that so that's what saul's doing to israel saul is all about the image of strength but there's no fruit in his strength and he doesn't put his image or strength in god and this becomes his downfall which is sad because he's the first king of israel But the line of Israel won't go through any of these people that were just listed. And this is also what Samuel prophesied. Because of Saul's sin, it will not be the throne of Saul as we go forward in Israel's history. It's going to be the throne of David. And it'll be David's descendants that Jesus comes from, not Saul's descendants. So we see this shift happening. This chapter tells us why. It's kind of a bummer, but we got to meet Jonathan. So luckily there's this contrast of this Jonathan and his devout friend And the revolution that happens under Jonathan gives Israel a little bit of break from the Philistines. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word. And we don't come to your word lightly. We don't open your scriptures flippantly. Uh, We don't do it with anything but the great seriousness, Lord, if we want to know what you have to say. Uh, Lord, help this word to sink into our hearts this week. Help us to be wise about leadership, about friendship, about the themes of courage and fighting evil that pop up in this chapter. Lord, help us to not be foolish with those themes, but to discern them and make judgment, to use our brains around what battles to fight and when to fight them. Lord, help us to be like Jonathan, where we test and measure every situation against your will. And Lord, if you want us in the battle, we're willing to die. Um, And Lord, if you want us to back off, then we're willing to do that. And we'll do both with joy. But Lord, help us to see your will before we see our own. Uh, Help us to not create arbitrary rules. Help us to not make foolish vows or test you unnecessarily. Um, We're not here to test you, Lord. We're here to follow you. Um, And everything we do wants to be in that light. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that isn't walking with you and seeking to serve you and follow you, if there's anyone in this room that still resonates more with Saul than Jonathan, Lord, I pray they don't leave here tonight. You know, as Mikey showed us, we don't know how many days we got. Uh, Lord, we could not even get home tonight to our own beds. So, Lord, help us to be urgent about serving and following you. Um, Lord, and I pray you anoint people. Bless us this week. Go with us as we go forward. Um, But, Lord, help us to just choose to follow you tonight and this week and this month and for the rest of our lives. That you're a king that's better than Saul, you're better than David and you sit on your throne and we just want to serve you as our king. In Jesus' name we pray.